It's Monday, October 11th, and we have Evram and MV Doge. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat It, Virginia. My name is Scott Wise, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, my friend, Roby Martin. Roby, this is the most exciting recording we've had this year, I think, because... We're face-to-face. You know what? Is this the first time we've been face-to-face this year? I has, been it hasn't been a podcast. very much. It hasn't been very much. You're right. And look at the setting we're in. Why don't you tell the folks at home where we are? Oh, I'll do that to all three listeners. Um, we're at Bookbinders in... Tobacco Row. Ah, from John, the owner of Bookbinders. We're in Tobacco Row. Well, welcome. Welcome, guys. We have the owners of Sub Rosa with us this morning live. So if this sounds a little weird and a little off the cuff, that's because it is. So welcome, guys. How are you this morning? Very good. Thank you. Doing wonderfully. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm going to go right in because I don't know how you guys got to Richmond, and I'd like to hear the story. Okay. Well, I guess in chronological order, I came to Richmond first. I went to VCU in 2001. I was at VCU from 2001 to 2006, and I moved away for a time, but I always came back to Richmond, and I I think I've been here since 2009, uh, which is when I started Sub Rosa as just a bread venture. We can get into that later, but... uh, I'd like to get into that now. What does a bread venture mean? (laughs) Uh, well, it means that you can't find a job, and <laughs> your hobby is making bread at home, and uh, you give away enough bread that people are like, oh, I'd pay for this, you know? And so uh, I started it as a, as a hobby, and then a friend of mine had an idea for doing a bread subscription, you know, having um, monthly or weekly pickups paid monthly so, uh, at the farmer's market, and that combined with my father, I was telling him how excited I was about baking bread, and at the time he had a restaurant in Northern Virginia, and he um, said, well, why don't you just use the kitchen after hours? So Sub Rosa was kind of born in the, in the wee hours of the morning of a, of a not used kitchen at my dad's pizza pizza place. So you just go one day, I'm just going to make some bread, or you already had some foundation to that? Uh, I, no, I mean, I... I made a lot of bread at home. <laughs> I was I was a home baker. Yeah, I. You like a good sandwich. Eventually, I, yeah. I mean, I well, basically, wherever I went, I kept finding myself wanting to make bread. Um, yeah, th- I was an intern at a school in England, and I led a world of bread baking class. Completely not qualified to teach a class on that. The seventeen-year-old who wanted to do the class was more qualified. She was like, "Yeah, my grandmother's, you know." It's an uh, 80-year-old recipe. Let's do it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. On board. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but anyway, once, once I started, uh, it's, it's a rabbit hole and, and a love, you know, relationship. When, when you find something like that, you just, there's a lot of people that you might see or meet who make bread now that had that kind of fever, fever dream of wanting to make bread all the time. So it began like that. But I didn't think we were going to turn it into something, really, until um, Avian was, uh, had moved back from Istanbul. She had been living in Turkey for years, and um, the possibility of doing something with her really unlocked this other level, because I just wanted to make bread, but I knew that she loves pastry. And, you know, enter stage left. I was going to say, nice segue <laughs> here. I like it. So what's it like? growing up with someone who only wants to bake bread all the time. <laughs> how does that, as a brother and sister, how does that work? Well, I mean, the, uh, my brother's love of making bread started a lot later. Growing up, uh, we did, uh, we grew up in the restaurant business. My father owned pizza restaurants. So um, I guess it wasn't until my 30s and really within the past decade that my brother was interested in making bread and I heard about it from Turkey. My parents and family members were asking me if I had heard about my brother's bread. I was a little confused because he hadn't been making bread our whole lives. He always was a little more curious in the kitchen. Um, I was more in charge of setting the table and being an amazing eater. I love to eat. And my brother was a little uh, more curious and would help my mom in the kitchen. Um, And then we had both ended up being in the kitchen in the end. Yeah, true. 
in the kitchen together. So I'm pathetic with one of my siblings in the kitchen. Like, like I like, no, you have to do this. No, you're doing it wrong. Just get out. Do you yeah. feel that way ever? Uh, oh, sometimes. You no. answer. Yeah, I was gonna say you answer first. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I mean, I would say the first two or three years were challenging, just because we were working a lot more. We were just exhausted, as any uh, food business owner or maybe any business owner is in the beginning. And um, I think there was the irritability factor just with everyone because you're exhausted and because it's easy to take things out on your family members. Maybe it was a little more with my brother, but... Uh, yeah, can I... I, I just yeah. feel like, though, in those those years, we were in the kitchen together a lot. Like, there was... That's true. Four, three of us in the back, four of us in the back, making everything. Um, sometimes Avian would be in the front. Like, we were, you know, doing that stupid thing. Um, and then as the years have... Now it's... When we have a shift together, we're like, oh, it's actually really nice. Wow. We can catch up. Oh, that's <laughs> good. Yeah. yeah, but I, I was gonna say in addendum to what she was saying about having, uh, you know, being irritated at each other, being in the kitchen so much. I think I always, at least personally, come back to we were both working so many hours, so long. It's really easy to feel compassion for the other person. I think it would have been weird if you know, one of us was in the office, so to speak, sure. and only doing administration, and then the other people, you know, the other one of us was cooking or baking, because, uh, I don't know, then it would feel like, well, you don't understand, <laughs> but that's a good the, point. Yeah. at the end of the day, we, yeah. we kind of understood what we're both going through. So the actual Sub Rosa here in Richmond started in 2012. Right? Opened right. in 2012 after your bread CSA, if you will. Yeah, so the bread CSA started in June of 2009, and then that was in insane. Like, the stupidest thing. I would not recommend anyone to start a business that way. A bread CSA or a CSA in general? Because I know some farmers oh, that no. get really... Oh, <laughs> no. Bread CSA. I don't know. The way we did it. Uh, like, uh. okay, so here's what you don't do. Oh, good. Um, this is good stuff. Yeah. Six, I'm taking notes. Yeah, good. exactly. Like, six months... Um, of your life can be doing this, but two and a half years was uh, too much. So don't um, pick your friend up in Charlottesville, drive to Northern Virginia, stay up for two nights in a row making 80 breads in a pizza oven made to make pizza, not bread, building fires with cardboard, hauling the coals outside into a parking lot, dumping them into a bucket, baking in that time around 80 to 90 loaves, waiting for them to cool, the morning shift is coming in. You haven't slept. They they look at you like you're a murderer. They you know you're what are you space. doing here? You're in my space. Get out. We get, load the car up. Drive back to Charlottesville. Drop off half the bread. Drive to Richmond. Show up sometimes as the market is being set up. Set up the bread in the back of your uh, station wagon or Honda Civic at that time, and sell the bread out of there. So artisanal. you learned some things. Yeah, it's artisanal, Ruby. <laughs> That's how artisanal you can edit is. That that's the definition of artisanal. <laughs> that's, right. That's, that's right. That's great. And yeah. also sounds terrible, yeah. honestly. Yeah, it's bad. So let's talk about the good stuff. 2012. Yeah. yeah. 2012, Avian. Bring, oh. us, bring us up to date. Uh, just how we Opened, ended up opening. Yeah, why you decided Churchill? What, what was the first year like? Then 2013 happened, and that wasn't that the was most true. fun year ever, right? No, no. So yeah, let's start with 2012. Well, we, yeah, we opened the bakery for the first time in December of 2012, and, um... And you were making croissants, and, like, we were baking out of the oven and bringing them to the birdhouse market. That's uh, right, we still... Which is a Tuesday market. That's true, that's important to say. Before December of 2012, we needed to start making money. We were spending so much money trying to open the place that we had an oven that was set up, but the rest of the bakery was not set up. So we would bake everything in the oven, uh, the oven that you guys all know if you've been to the bakery. And then we would, um, on Tuesdays, bring it to the Birdhouse Farmer's Market, where we still bring it. <laughs> and then on Fridays, we would do like a speakeasy, but we would call it a bakeasy. And we would sell our pastries and bread out of my I brother's apartment. This. I do above the bakery. I just wonder why it wasn't easy bake. That's yeah, true. Oh. Exactly. Oh, brutal. <laughs> yeah, brutal. Thank you. So yeah, we did that for probably six or seven months before we actually opened the bakery. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think um, I slept on the couch in the room where people were buying things once or twice. Is that true? Probably. I yeah. think I was, we were really artisanal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's but all goes sell, under that. We, we would sell out. It was pretty cool. People yeah, would just fun. come upstairs to fun. my brother's apartment and we I had, had this dinner long in that table. apartment. It's very nice. Oh, apartment. that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Chris Bianca. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a pizza guy there who that's didn't right. make any pizza. Curiously. No, when yeah. you were with us, you know. Yeah. Switch it up. So why Churchill? Did we talk about that yet? Oh yeah. That uh, well, has more to do with Evram. Yeah. yeah, well, I guess, yeah, Avian hadn't moved to Richmond yet, right? So she was doing a crash course in pastry, um, working 70 hours a week mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, and then she went to two other, you know, she was at two other bakeries, kind of learning as much as she could before her brother was like, let's just do this, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, when we first opened, I said, I don't mind if we just have croissants and chocolate croissants, like two things, that's it, you know? We'll, we'll be real. Both delicious. I'd buy them let's, both. So that's right. Good call. Um, you know, she was like, well, let's have a little bit more of a menu. <laughs> um, so anyway, th at that time, um, we went from, uh, wh where were we? I was. December of 2012. We're in December Why of 2012. Churchill? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a very good question. I Thank lived you. For the second time. Yeah, I lived exactly. <laughs> I, I lived there in 2003 when I was at VCU, and I loved it. Um, in those days, it was much more of a sleepy hamlet. Um, down the hill and up the hill, you know, nobody came, I, you know, it would be, be a rare retreat. And then uh, as time went on, I've always loved that neighborhood and we were looking for a brick and mortar at, you know, let's stop the insanity going up to Northern Virginia and baking. Um, so actually for, this is, the, this is like the scoop, the scoop of the podcast. We That's were, what we're waiting for. Right, we were, we were under contract for the old Billy Bread space, the tiny, tiny thing on Allen. Had Billy fallen sold it the thirtieth time. That was the twenty ninth. Twenty ninth. And so, um, you know, so it, 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 yeah, it wasn't him. It was somebody else who owned it. I don't I honestly don't even remember. But in terms of the stars aligning for a certain place to be, it didn't turn out. Contract fell through. Blah blah blah. Fast forward to a my uh, friend was having a baby shower next door to what is now Subrosa, and. One of them, my other friends who was there was like, you know, it'd be a great bakery, that spot right there. <laughs> and I walked out the door and looked at it and literally like, yeah, I just saw it, you know, it was like, oh. And that friend like, is here right now, come on in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. please, please, where are you? Didn't happen. Oh, yeah, Scott. No, didn't happen. <laughs> and so anyway, that's how we ended up in that particular spot. Um, it was, uh, you know, there, it's attached to three apartments and the commercial space downstairs this was pre-Roosevelt, had not opened yet, and um, yeah, I mean, none of the restaurants that are in Church Hill now, uh, almost none of them were open at the time. So, or especially in our Union Hill area. Uh, so we, we took, it took a very long time, a year of, yeah, it was a pretty painful process, because this was 2011. Mm -hmm. so it took a year to actually purchase the place, which we did. And then it took another year to build it out. So at the end of 2012, we, you know, about 20 months later, we opened. Wow. Yeah. So now you mentioned that you grew up in a restaurant family. Yeah. Did you, as a child, as children, did you foresee yourselves going into the family business, or did you reject it early on and then kind of come back home t to it? Yeah, I would say more the latter. I don't think either of us uh, were too interested because we saw how hard my dad worked all the time and. The hours were really rough, um, and we both actually coincidentally went into education, which was my mom's um, career, and decided that even though it's very rewarding, food, I guess, is where our heart was at. It was also a little bit of... I don't know. <laughs> it's your heart. <laughs> I think both of our... I'm speaking for both of us. Yeah, um, yeah I guess, yeah. I don't know, teaching is... Baking is hard, but I don't know if there are any teachers out there listening, but I had, yeah. Yeah, shout out to the teachers. Shout out to the teachers. Jeez. I would say teaching is harder, <laughs> so yeah. I chose the easier path. So what was what was mealtime like in your home growing up? Were you always at the restaurant? Did you guys eat at home? What was that family, what was it like? Oh, wow. I don't. I mean, yeah, we ate amazing food at dinner. But we went out once a week or maybe twice a yeah, week. Yeah, my mom let us go to my dad's pizza restaurant once a week. That was the rule. Yeah. So the other nights she cooked uh, mostly. She was a wonderful, was and is a wonderful cook. Yeah, a lot we of ate Turkish mostly food. Turkish yeah. food. Yeah. yeah, but also. And Turkish food from like the north, like if people who are not familiar with Turkish cuisine, there's kind of three or four distinct cuisines there that would be different enough that you wouldn't recognize them. 
and hers is much a, more a GN, kind of classical, um, northwestern Turkish style, which is mild. The spices are mainly black pepper and uh, cumin, maybe. But lots of vegetables lots stewed of and herbs. garlic and yeah. onion and tomato. And yeah, so very Mediterranean yeah. and GN style. And that leads me to my next question. That Turkish culture, how do we see that in your business today with both your food and your and just the business in general? Yeah, it was funny. I mean, early on, I, I think that we, we you, no matter what you do, it ends up becoming kind of part of your marketing, you know, even if you've never, like we've never, um, we don't have an advertising budget, we've never advertised, you know, the things that we've done that have made us um, distinct or popular are just things that we thought, wow, wouldn't this be an amazing thing to have in a bakery, an amazing way to do a bakery. And I, I think that includes the flavors that we include. So we never wanted to be kind of pigeonholed as like a particular kind of bakery, but we love French viennoiserie, or, you know, I say viennoiserie, but like French pastry, Eastern and I mean Western Mediterranean pastries are fabulous. Like we grew up enjoying Turkish pastries and, and Turkish sweets, but they're not like where yeah, where we would want to go every day. So I think in keeping with having a bakery where when we walked in, what would we want to eat there? You know, for me it was let's just have a very solid bread menu that's very simple, but it's bread that you would want to eat every day. And then with pastries, I'll, I'll let you kind of say more about yeah, that. Yeah, and I would just say specifically if you're looking for Turkish items, there's probably about five. Yeah. There's the flatbread with sesame and agella seeds, which is our favorite loaf on the menu. There's pocha, which are little biscuit-like um, pastries stuffed with feta cheese. Um, there's cherry pistachio croissants. There's the burek, which is a traditional Turkish flaky pastry with ground lamb and onion. And then there's our greens and feta, which is kind of our version of a spanakopita um, in Turkish, a spanakla burek. Um, so those are probably the four or five Turkish items. But yeah, that every would be more recognizable, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's different things we'll do, like their quiche sometimes we'll do with um, eggplant or zucchini and dill. And not that that's per se Turkish, but uh, definitely influenced by our Turkish heritage. Right. Sour, cherry, sour cherry and pistachio, you know, right word, right, yeah, that one. And then um, there's probably a couple others that, like yeah, even fig them. cheese and even fig jam and cheese is kind of a more Mediterranean thing to do. That's true. Have yeah. salty cheese with a, a jam, you know, we grew up with that. I think I've had every one of those. Yeah, <laughs> not Great. a bad thing. I feel pretty good about it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> goals, life goals. Hashtag. Yep, there it is. So 2012, here we are, going along a pretty hardcore, a couple articles written, right? And then 2013 happens, and what happens? So, uh, yeah. Big fire. Yeah, we had a fire. Um, had nothing to do with the oven or electrical. It was just caused by a, a lone spark of a cigarette, a lone, you know, cigarette put being put out incorrectly. That's why you shouldn't smoke, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, I quit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it wasn't my cigarette. Uh, <laughs> that being said, uh, we went through, oh, yeah, it was a very sudden stop. I, the way we put it at the time was it was like, you know, trying to run a marathon and you slip on a banana peel, like the 10th step, you know. Um, so we had an amazing outpouring of support from um, the community. Uh, so much love and I just was looking back actually at emails. We we would receive from multiple people. They would just say, just come in, your whole staff can eat for free, you know, things like that. Um, and, and of course, people did huge fundraisers for us. We were closed for nine months. We reopened at the beginning of 2014. Um, and we, we had to move out. We didn't have a place to live, so we, we rented a place down the um, street. And that our, the apartments connected to the bakery weren't ready till over a year later. Because the apartments above the bakery bore the brunt of the damage. The bakery itself was actually in decent shape, all things considered. Yeah, not so bad. The Just kitchen the, was bad. But oh, I didn't yeah. know that. That's Yeah, it went yeah. up. The fire went up. And we lived yeah. so close to the fire department, they came really, really quickly. So That's good. Yeah. It's a good thing about Churchill you didn't know. You're really close to the fire department. Yeah, all very the fire close. department, yeah. So you guys reopened in 2014 yeah, and immediately... And got launched into the New York Times discussing your affinity, this is a good segue right here, yeah. for <laughs> milling grains. So, and yeah. you are like, for the, I mean, the best word is you really geek out on grain. 
Yeah, yeah, we love, um, you know, if you think about the number one ingredient that we use in the bakery, it's, it's grain, so it's turned into flour, but it's the basis for everything we do. So we've milled since the beginning. Um, I felt pretty adamantly that we should have at least a portion of all of our goods with freshly milled flour in it. I fell in love with the flavor first and foremost, and then um, later with, uh, well, it connected to the idea we, we've always wanted to eat um, more seasonally with food that's grown in our region. And so we really wanted that same um, consideration to be uh, put forward towards grain, something like something as basic as flour. And now there's been an increased interest and um, re revival, I guess you could say, or trying a recreation of trying to make a, a new grain economy in the East Coast, which is really, really difficult. You two are very much put your money where your mouth is, that it's not a pun, because you not only are interested in grain, you've started a few different community alliances, so forth and so on, with respect to this grain geeking that you do. Grain, yes, yeah. The, so the grain, yeah, I mean, the grain geeking, the, the way it is is um, Avian is like the ultimate taste tester. So she's very, uh, she's very high standards for how something should taste. So even if I'm like, let's do it because it's a weird grain, she's like, ah, it's pretty weird tasting too, <laughs> you know, um, or whatever, it doesn't fit in our menu or something like that. So we do have a balance, I think, between uh, focusing on the, the flavor and then focusing on the kind of the regional food or local food aspects of it. So yeah, but way back, um, well, what year is this? I don't know, two or three years ago, there's a, a few other farmers, bakers, um, and um, concerned food citizens that reached out to me and we kind of, we met in a library in Waynesboro. Um, this is before I had kids, so I know it's at least four years ago. Anyway, so they they wanted to create a nonprofit that would help pump up, um, you know, regional grain in, in the mid-Atlantic region, but especially Virginia. So that was the foundation of the Common Grain Alliance, which is, I think, what you're yeah, referring to. Um, Common Grain Alliance, uh, you know, I dragged along on the board for two years, and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so busy with everything else, I'm, I'm gonna have to leave the board. You had babies. Yeah, it was not a good time for me to be on the board of anything. So um, they are going strong now, much stronger <laughs> without me, but we're, I'm you know, still a member, I love what they're doing, and we get to connect with um, other CGA members uh, who grow the grain, even deliver it to us, um, go through everything that you would have to go through to create this most basic of products that we use in our bakery. So it, it is, it, it is a, an aspect of our bakery that kind of goes a lot deeper than perhaps other businesses might, but we had building blocks on the way there. You know, we, we bought grain from um, Kansas and Minnesota in, in years prior, and it's only in the recent years that farmers have been able to bring in the quality of grain that's um, good enough to really start baking with and really experimenting with. So we're still in the infancy. Yeah. Why is that? Why did, did we not have that in place throughout our history? That's like podcast number I don't know, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, you'd need, okay. you'd need multiple episodes for that. Want to give us the cliff notes? The cliff notes. Why? Can you ask the question that still again? A thing? Yeah, well, I feel like that's still like You said that you got age. your grains from the Midwest. Yeah. And there wasn't the infrastructure here to, to have the, the high quality ingredient. Obviously, yeah. Virginia is one of the first colonies we've had. You know, we had farming before everybody else. Why, like, why did we not have that in place? So I, I guess I'd point to multiple, multiple factors. Um, you know, Virginia was in the South, so there was a lot of free labor in the form of um, slavery and indentured servitude, so it would be pretty hard to divorce that from the realities of um, Shenandoah being like the breadbasket of Virginia in the 1800s. Um, but really, I think that, I, I guess I could say like a bunch of um, crazy things like, you know, I, I think that the farming, even at that time, was aiming more at being a commodity-driven, like very profit-based, not land-based um, enterprise. And so there's pretty good records of 
the colonists and uh, other farmers exhausting the soil pretty fast. And um, once you find places like Kansas or you know, the Dakotas where they can have huge swaths of grain that grows fabulously well and the yield is incredible, then, and you have the train, then everything kind of moves out west. So it, it's a common thing that we've seen, you know, even when you go to the supermarket and things aren't from Virginia, they're from California with a tomato or, or you know, a broccoli. It's a similar story, or dairy has that story, right? Dairy used to be available in Virginia, now it's, I think we have one choice. I mean, we've, we have a difficult time with that too, finding sources for all these things. So really grain story is very, um, is echoed in all of the food uh, that we eat, but uh, the Cliff Notes version would, would be like, yeah, click, it's complicated button. <laughs> Uh, relationship, yeah. I know that button. You know that button? The complicated button, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, nobody uses it anymore. Right? <laughs> um, I did want to ask about your personalities and the strengths that each of one of you brings to the business. Can you can you elaborate on, on what, yeah. why you? What What is your strength to the business? Um, I think, generally speaking, I uh, am more detail-oriented, and my brother is better at seeing the big picture, so I think we work well in that way. Sometimes I can't see the forest for the trees, and he's the opposite, so. Um, can't see trees. Yeah, can't see trees, <laughs> and gets hit in the head. No, um, I think that, yeah, I think my strengths are mainly that I'm detail-oriented, and um, what else are my strengths? Can you, think of an example, can you think of an example where he came to you with an idea, and you were just kind of like, that's no. not gonna fly. Oh man, there's got to be a list there's of them. We just don't do them anymore. Like one time, remember when I was like, "Let's do gigantic breads and sell them by the pound." I do remember that. <laughs> we did it for like a week. Um, why can't I think of specific examples right now? I know I, that with wine, maybe you wanted to do some things with the natural wine, but that's I don't know. A yeah, different. usually there are things where I'm like. What if we just gave away everything for a day? And she's like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> How big are these gigantic breads, by the way? You, I want to I know more about yeah, this. Yeah, 8 to 14 pounds. Wow. And they, they keep very, they're like this big. It is a little bit of the, I will say, like the machismo of like, why? Like, yes, is the answer. <laughs> Like, there's Long no question. answer, yeah. yeah. Because I want Why to. Not? Yeah, because we this uh, look at this oven, it can fit. Look at you this know. bread. Yeah, exactly. So, so sub risotto was your idea? No, no, that was actually brought to us by um, wine lovers in the neighborhood who wanted to do an after-hours event. And I had like thought about, we had done all these special events where we had wine at the events, like dinners, and I thought, oh, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to do uh, you know, an after-hours thing and then we have the licensing to do it, to sell wine. Now it's just like, people are like, you sell wine? Like, <laughs> you know, barely there, but um, yeah. So that was started by, by two, two friends. I kind of think, going back to your question, that maybe it was more I had, uh, I don't know if ideas is the right word, I was influenced by my father and other people who were like, why don't you make baguettes? Why don't you make sandwiches? And I would go to Everm and say, why don't we do these things? We should do these things. And Everm actually, um, was the one who was like, let's think about this. We have a very small space. We are already so busy. To make sandwiches to order is a big deal. So yeah, I almost I think thank him did for keeping our menu simple and just letting us focus on what we do, um, yeah. how we do it. Yeah, I would so say that kind of she's not... around in a way. <laughs> yeah, she's not the extremist, though. I'm like, definitely the... I, am I allowed to say that on radio or podcast? Go the word. I'm, yeah, I'm it. tagged now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm definitely more like... When an idea, when I get taken by an idea, I, yeah, I oh, have there one. it is. There oh, it did is. you see the light bulb I, on yeah. that? Time, but we pulled it out of him, Roby. Well, there's this tart that my brother <laughs> came up that. with um, based on a traditional Turkish dessert. Um, the traditional Turkish dessert is called mohalebit, and it is made with um, mastic, which is a very unique and unusual <laughs> flavor that kind of tastes like pine needles. Yeah, and, has anybody here um, had gum mastic before? I feel it's, like it's in a liquor. Christmas at Sabrosa. <laughs> well, there are, yeah, I guess it does have a little bit of like a anise No, it's, it really tastes... It's its own thing it's in its a way. Thing. But Ephraim, like, the past few years, has uh, spearheaded this tart we make just for Christmas time, which is made with a pat sucre dough, so just like a nice... Um, uh, 
shortbready kind of crust, and he makes this pudding, this milk pudding with this ingredient, mastic. So we call it the mohale bitart. And I was very skeptical that more than two people would want to buy this because it's something people haven't mostly haven't heard of. It's a challenge. It's um, a challenging flavor if you've never it, had it before. But it's popular, and we sell out every year. And it actually turned out to be really delicious. I feel um, like we should revisit the large breads now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right back. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I would have never thought to to do that or to introduce that to. I mean, it's not just American palates. Even for me, being Turkish, it took me a while to to enjoy that flavor. So. So I want to talk about, I have some like weird random questions for people that listen to this, like with respect to baking, because that's primarily what you do with respect to Sabrosa. Mm -hmm. What yeah. does laminating mean? I feel like you might have a better definition for it. Oh, well, um, I don't know. I guess, I mean, it's what we do with butter. I mean, so any, anything that's a laminated dough is layering butter with dough. So you have, yeah. how long she does taught that me take? that. Um, Okay, so laminating croissant dough for where we're at now and eight years down the line, it took us a lot longer, uh, first few years. I would say the whole process takes about um, four hours. The laminating itself, we've all been able to do in two hours a day. If you count the pre-ferment all the way to shaping, all the way to baking, minimum 48 hours, though. 48? Yeah, from the very beginning. Like, if you take raw ingredients and then you want to make a croissant in our oven oh the whole process takes that long is but that actually oh, just... i like i like all of this okay. Keep okay. Going. Yeah, yeah. the whole process yeah it's a two-day process when you think about the pre-ferments but in terms of the actual taking the butter taking the dough yeah. wrapping it up and sheeting it out that is two hours um and and that's moving quickly or if you're me yeah, four hours yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it's much slower if you're looking at the forest, I'm, not yeah, the trees. I'm just staring at the sky at that point. <laughs> and that two hours makes about um, 300 pastries. That dough would yield about 300 pastries. So, so we do that every day. <laughs> so what is you all's schedule if you're looking at 48 hours plus being super busy at Sabrosa plus providing farmer's markets and restaurants and all of this type of thing with pastries? First, let's talk quantity and talk schedule. Like, mm. What does a day look like? Um, well, you want now, you brain. want like present day, right? Not the history of this. Because it's changed a lot. Yes. A lot, a lot. Like we have uh, six of us, seven of us, six or seven, seven of us in yeah. the back counting us. Uh, my sister and I both have at least two to three kitchen shifts. Um, and, and then we both have at least one administrative shift a week. And then now we've, we can talk about it later, but we've expanded milling and we're milling a lot more. We have two mills now. And um, so now there's milling shifts. But quantity, gosh, let's break it down. Um, how many patons in a week? 18 times 18 six times or 18 times five? Times six. So 18, 18 times six, 108. 108. And each baton auspicious. goes about, and let's just say 20. What? Let's say each baton. Yeah, let's say you 20. get about 20 croissants per baton. So what is that? What do we got? 808 times 20. Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. Sorry. What are you doing over there, Scott? Get out the calculator. What am I multiplying? A thousand, whatever. A thousand, 116, 116. 108 times 20? Yeah. It's 2160. 2160. Okay. Math teachers? 2160? Sorry. So I guess we make enough dough for about, yeah, 2,000 croissants. A week. And we go through almost all the patons in a week, depending on special orders or this or that. And then around the holidays, those numbers will be up a little bit. Those numbers were also about easily half five years ago. And that's just croissants. So you're talking 100,000, oddly, of croissants a year, right? Right. Give or take. Yeah, a, and we're a micro bakery. A like, this is a small mm -hmm. bakery. So if you go, I mean, maybe small, medium now. Like, we were micro, micro. Now I think we're small, medium bakery. Compared to other bakeries that we visited, we were, I don't know, Definitely making less, and and especially breads. Like breads, we probably do about a hundred, average a hundred a day, a hundred a day, five days a week, and then one day. Six. So yeah, about um, five hundred and fifty breads a week on average. Holy moly! And the breads are like a little bit more slow, and you know they're a little more involved at sometimes, and then less involved because you're just waiting for them to rise. But um, 
the, I, I'd say that they are a heavier toll on the baker on the baking end because we load each bread by hand into a wood-fired oven, and the wood-fired oven is the whole thing. Yeah. You're in a space of a, like the size of a Tic Tac, so I imagine that it gets pretty crowded in there. We, yeah. We've changed the schedule. Avian well, the came schedule up with a good... schedule is a little better, but yeah. yeah, we have a very small space. I think one of the first things any visiting baker or visitor will say is, you make all of those things in this size of a kitchen? It's a pretty small space. Yeah, and just um, be a wood-fired oven, so we yeah. don't have a separate oven to bake the pastries versus the bread. We have two. And that guy goes 24 hours a day, the wood-fired oven? It's it, it's it has fire. It takes it has, mad skills. It has Yeah, it has fire in it from around 3 p.m. till 10 p.m., so it's just fire inside of the oven. So, so even if we wanted eat. to bake more, we kind of there's a cutoff yeah. at three. Three, we can't bake anymore because we have to start the fire for the next for day. The next for the day. next day, and then so the fire burns. It's basically like how Egyptians did it six thousand years ago. It's the same thing. They built a room. They build a fire in the room. They take the fire out. The room is hot. Put the stuff in, right? So um, it's the same exact principle. The bricks are a little better now, <laughs> and, and uh, we get our wood from Powhatan, you know. So, um, but so not quite the same as Egyptians, yeah, but close. Yeah, different, you know. But the um, the principle is the same, and we end up having the fire. It, it's always they call it a falling oven. The temperature is falling all night long, and then the baker comes in early in the morning and just tries to catch that wave of heat as it goes from 7 a.m. till 2 p.m. I have so many questions, and we only have enough time for maybe Oops. one or two more between the two of us before we open it up to our audience here. It's all you, Scott. Oh, you're so sweet. She's not like this at home. Um, let's talk a little bit about the community. You mentioned after the fire, the community came together to really help you guys out um, in various ways. And I know since then, you guys have done a lot to help your community. I know last December, Roby and I were outside of Sobrosa because you guys were giving away bread to community members in need. Can you talk a little bit about how important that is to you guys to, to give back? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very important. Um, and I wish we had started it even sooner. Uh, it was really after COVID, that, like many businesses, that we just, like many food businesses, that we decided that we should try to do our part to help. And I think Evram, along with Maddie, one of our bakers, yeah. came up with the, um, or decided that we wanted to be part of this community loaf program that was kind of uh, spreading across the country. Yeah, and there were other other bakers that wanted to take a percentage of the breads they were making and make them available um, to any any you know organizations that were distributing them to people who don't usually have access to to good bread. Um, and so we we started doing that, and then the the other side of that was having it be. Um, you know, because you still want to be able to remain viable doing it and be able to do it for a long time. So it's not just like a, okay, we're doing this for a month and it's a flash and that's it. So for the sustainability of it, we rely on customers and, and then we kind of match, you know, we do our own kind of donations in-house, but um, so you customers can buy, can a, community buy, loaf, buy yeah. a community loaf, quote unquote. Um, we actually, funny enough, we've had this for coffee the entire existence of our bakery. You can buy a coffee that somebody else who doesn't have the money for a coffee can just have a free coffee. Um, it was a pay it forward co coffee idea that we got from Naples. But the um, the bread version now is, is yeah, even deeper, more meaningful, because honestly, as important as coffee is, which everyone here would probably be like, yeah, I'll choose coffee over bread, but um, yeah. If you can have bread. both. Yeah, yeah, let's take both, yeah. That's, you, you we're done? More time community? Because I have a big question. This oh. is a huge one. For me or for them? For them. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead. Well, mostly for everyone. So we go to a crawfish boil. Oh, boy. Every year, based on Tompton Farm, which is a local CSA here, I think also maybe a member. Um, really, how much crawfish can you eat? <laughs> oh, this is the secret. Um, so we grew up in Louisiana. This is actually a, a history question. So we grew up going to crawfish boils every year. I can eat a uh, Albertson's paper bag, like a full grocery bag, full, in one sitting. It's a lot of crawfish. That's yeah. impressive. You're listening to Eat It Virginia with Roby Martin, Scott Wise, and Evram and Evie. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Perhaps the best way to do this is raise your hand if you have a question, or actually we're all plugged in, so that's not going to work. Maybe... Got some light? All right. 
maybe kind of step forward a little bit, stand up. I should probably put a mask on. I'm fascinated with the design of your oven, and I find it uh, absolutely fascinating, the, the, the history and the source of the design. Talk about that. You, you want me to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. my I, brother I was is there, like, the it, one, this is the reason we have that oven. So. Yeah, even, yeah, which is both, it's, you know, what she's saying is I can curse you <laughs> more because but of I did it bake for the masons that built it, and yeah. I'd like to think that that fueled them to make it beautiful oven. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, and same with the music. Um, so that oven was built by uh, Jeremiah Church and Antoine Gurlain of a, a now defunct business called Turtle Rock Masonry. Um, Jeremiah still builds ovens, I think under the name Boreal Heat, and then um, Antoine has a, if you're ever in Hudson, New York, Sparrowbush Farm, Sparrowbush Bread, he has, he, he became a baker from being a mason. So um, up north, they're more popular, they're masonry ovens that are used to heat houses, so they're um, intensely built with brick, and the idea is they're very efficient because you're building a fire in them and the brick gets so hot that it stays hot for a long time because it's masonry, it's thick, it, it holds heat really, really well um, compared to say like poured concrete or um, you know metal, which is just reflective. So um, they started building uh, for a friend. I think this is actually, uh, Elmore Mountain was their, for, was their friend up there they're, they're big in the wood-fired baking world um, and responsible for our mill as well under the name New American. But they start. They had the first oven built by um, Turtle Rock, and it was basically just take the same design but make a huge space where you could bake bread in it um, and add more insulation. So instead of giving off heat, you're uh, keeping it all in. So it's that basic design I was telling you earlier, but um, extended into oven territory. If you go online and you know YouTube French masonry ovens or Swedish masonry ovens, you'll see a lot of similar designs, but they're more cavernous, and you know over there they're baking hundreds or a thousand loaves at a time, but they're fun to look at. And uh, we we had a um, for anyone who's been to the bakery, it's. Uh, uh, narrow, long, narrow space. So we didn't have a lot of space to go wide like that cavern. So we talked to them about, they had built one deck on top of another. And so we talked to them about building a double deck oven. Um, and that's what they did. So it's one oven built on top of the other. We use one to bake bread and the other to bake pastries mostly. Uh, so one's a little hotter, one's a little cooler. And um, they're both inappropriate heights for a human body. So <laughs> that's also part of the design because you're basically like right here would be perfect. So let's just put one up there and one down there. Yeah, yeah we have one baker that um, she doesn't work with us anymore, but she did for years. And she had to step on a ladder essentially to reach the top. So her, she had an extra challenge when she was baking bread. We are we can step on a little stool, but she actually had to like get on a yeah. step ladder. We use milk crates now, though. We use milk crates. Most of us yeah. can reach everything with the milk crate, but. <laughs> um, okay, so as a chef, I really value consistency and quality, right? And doing that day in day out is so hard. How do you maintain that passion for that level of consistency and? How do you deal with burnout in a kitchen? Also make well, the big bread. Very good questions. <laughs> yes, big bread. Those are very good questions. I'll address the first one, the burnout. I think uh, we, ch we change the schedule around a little bit from She's time to time. She's a master. Yeah. I love scheduling, it turns out weirdly. But also we, um, all of us do everything there. So um, when you first start at Sabrosa, you're probably just gonna learn one task and do it for months. But once you've been at Sabrosa for a few months and if you're committed to staying, you'll learn how to bake in the oven. So you have a bake shift where you're just baking. You'll learn how to laminate and shape pastry where that's all you're doing and that's a day. And the next day you'll just make bread. So unlike a lot of bakeries, especially large scale bakeries where you're just doing the same task, you're the mixer and every day you're mixing and that's all you do. There's no problem with that at all, but I think it can lead to burnout, so none of us do that. We all have a different, we do something different every day. So it's 
a little less repetitive. Um, but I think another way to help with the burnout is to change things up a little bit, have specials, use seasonal ingredients, um, use seasonal ingredients in ways you never thought of um, in previous years. Like we're all working right now on thinking of a different way to use our apples, even though we have the very popular apple tart. We're like, well, what else can we do to make things interesting for our customers and for us? Um, and with consistency, that I think has a lot to do with time. We've all been working for nine years now and four or five of the years have been with the same bakers and that has been so helpful. There's a team of four, five of us now that have been together for years and we keep each other in check. We're constantly talking about every day. We cut open croissants, we cut open bread, we look at the crumb, we say, why does it look this way? What happened? We try to date things so that we can trace it back and know why, you know, pinpoint who made it and why it might have been a problem that day. Maybe the weather was un unseasonably hot. So it's a lot of things. I won't get into too much detail because it's exhaustive list, but it, I would, in a nutshell, say it comes with the, the expertise of skilled and experienced bakers and just being, um, what's the word, not scrupulous, uh, just... Yeah, just kind of relentless, yeah, in, relentless her, and, in, in, in her, like... In all, yeah. I mean, if you listen, yeah. what's interesting, what, what you said is that the first two things she mentioned, um, having all the bakers cross-trained doing different things and having, um, what was the second thing you said? Changing things up as much as we can with seasonal ingredients. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Those are both things that are actually like enemies of consistency, right? Because, you know, you have the same person doing the same thing every day. It's really easy to catch the variable but if everybody's doing something different every day, it's a little more up in the air. So I think that we have to have, we have to be on our toes a lot. And I, I will give it to Avian that I think she just has very, very, very high standards. Um, so, you know, I think just by virtue of not being able to be at the bakery for 70 hours, you know, that we both now take time off, um, it's hard because you give up what's happening during those hours? What if a croissant is getting through or a bread that's getting through? So you have, meet, you have meetings where you kind of are saying the same thing every meeting, but you know, you're always trying to tighten it up if it's getting too loose. And um, Yeah, we do try to check in with each other, and we didn't used to do this, but we now have a monthly meeting, and we'll, uh, whoever baked that day will pick out the croissants they think and the breads they think are their best example of their best work, and we'll just talk about it. So I think just like constantly talking to each other and checking in. Yeah. But yeah. food with soul is going to look different all the time, you know. That's true. Any other questions from the Beth? So Evram, you and I have talked a lot about local and local ingredients. Can you talk about a little bit you guys' commitment to local grains and what that's looked like for you, the evolution of that over your time there? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier with the Common Grain Alliance, it's really been a matter of um, trying to support the farmers as they figure out how to uh, grow viable grains for human consumption. Um, so, you know, what that looks like for us is similar to what, what Avian was saying about, you know, the importance for us to have a variety of tasks to do and a good team to do them with and to keep things exciting, okay, let's have a new way of using the ingredients. It's hard to introduce that into an already existing business that has its own gears, that's constantly moving. Um, and that's very similar to um, shifting to local grain, especially where the, the quality of the grain it might be really difficult to get the kind of bread. You, you know, you might be changing, you're changing the key ingredient with bread, you're talking about 95% of the product is just this, yeah, just this one ingredient. And then with, with everything else, it's still the basis. So it's still the majority of what people are biting into. So to, I think that part of my crazy, you know, extremist nature is like just, um, it would be great to just experiment. And if it fails, like, that's what everybody is buying at Subrosa. Like, you know what I mean? Like, be okay with almost failing, you know, almost the way that artists are allowed to fail, um, you know, because they have a bad year or two or something, and then they make this great work, and everyone's like, okay, well, we'll just forget about that period of time. Um, 
as a business that operates daily and with tight margins and you're charging $5 an item, yeah, you can't, we can't get away with it. Or Avian's convinced me that we can't get away with that as much. So it, rather than an art, it's a craft and trying to balance, I think, um, the newness of what we're getting from the local grain economy uh, with, with being a, a viable operating business has been the main struggle. Um, just even introducing, you know, so we, we've now, the, like for our main bread is 50% um, Virginia grain, for example, you know, and hopefully next year it'll be 75, and then the year after it'll be 100%. Um, is, it, is it accurate to say that Fred Sachs and Pete Sisti, like they have a lot to do with why we're able to use oh, yeah, more great, local grain? Yeah, to definitely to call out farmers. to farmers who have been really key in our uh, ability to, to make. What is their farm? Grapewood Farm is in Montrose, Virginia, uh, and um, Pete Sisti's uh, Greater, Greater Richmond Grains is in uh, Powhatan. And they came on the scene a little later, right? Like they, Pete Sisti specifically has like a computer company. Yeah, I mean, they both, they both have non-agricultural backgrounds, but they both had access and desire and passion. I mean, really an amazing combination of um, stars had to align to get them to be what to do what they're doing and um, one of the things I'll, I'll just say that you know you connect to as a business that's trying to use something like local grains like a staple food um, you come up against all of the difficulties that the farmer has to face in um, recreating this infrastructure so I mean I remember I don't know how many years ago that Pete and I spoke at a, a real local RVA meeting and I, I'm I think I was pretty um, pessimistic at the time. I was like, that's never, never going to work, you know. Um, but one of the issues that we talked about that we shared was the difficulty in recreating an infrastructure that hasn't been there. And now, especially, we didn't get to talk about this, but this could be another podcast. I'm for it. Near, near and dear to my heart is when we deal with it all the time, and I think it even connects to your question, is how do you have a food, how do you have a food business I would say especially with farming, but all the way to, you know, restaurants and bakery, where health of the workers is really paramount, where it's really part of the consideration of operating a business. And what's the cost of that? You know, because, you know, basically I can, I can tell you that if you're getting it cheap on the table or, you know, on the shelves, the cost is bore by somebody. Somebody is bearing the brunt of that. And so that's very, very true in the local food um, movement that there's a lot of people willing to bear the brunt of that of that work and that um, the difficulties of it. And um, it's not really, I think I would say, oh, if it was just not fair, that would be one thing. But I don't think it'll actually create um, sustainable long-term solutions for for our for people eating on this planet. <laughs> I agree with you. And I definitely think that is, maybe that's another real local yeah. last yeah, podcast. That. Please, big hand for these guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you, so thank you to each of you guys for thank being here today. Thank you for everybody's attention, too. Yes, thank, thank you, you guys for telling your story. I feel like it's long overdue, so we should have done this a long time ago. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Thanks to John and Bookbinders. Big hand to them. Thanks for Reliable Payments for having us here this morning. Um, these guys will stick around just for maybe a minute or two and then they're going to head out. So if you just want to introduce yourself or whatever, feel free. Um, if you have any questions for me, I'm here. This episode of Eat It Virginia. Eat It Virginia? <laughs> this episode of Eat It Virginia. <laughs> no! Oh, God, no.